0: Did you know you can listen to the Sleepy Bookshelf ad free by joining our premium feed? You'll also get exclusive bonus episodes and a seven day free trial, so you can decide whether you like it or not. Follow the link in the show notes to learn more. Good evening, and welcome to the Sleepy Bookshelf where we put down our worries from the day and pick up a good book. I'm Elizabeth, your host. Thank you so much for joining me tonight. This evening, we are returning to Journey to the Center of the Earth. But before we do that, let's take some time to relax and put the day behind us. Give your body permission to let go of any tension it is still holding from today. Even think about relaxing your facial muscles and neck. To my count, we will do some breathing to clear your mind. Inhale deeply for one, two, three. And four. Hold it a moment and now exhale slowly to one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and eight. You can carry on with this breathing if you like while I recap on the last episode. Previously in our story, Harry was reflecting on how smoothly the journey was going since they found the newly named water source, the Hans Buck. One day, however, he was walking in front of Hans and his uncle when he turned to realize he was alone. Thinking he must have walked too far ahead, he retraced his steps still didn't find his friends. He began to doubt himself. Had he been in front after all? Was there another turning in the tunnel he had missed? He then also discovered the stream of the Hunsburg was no longer running beside him. Panic set in as he began to run in various directions, shouting insensibly, and to no apparent end until he fell to the ground. He then noticed the light of his corf coil dimming. It had been damaged, and soon the light went out. He must have fallen asleep in that total darkness, for he seemed to awake to the sound of voices. It was his uncle, his voice being thrown by some miracle of geology from miles away. Harry spoke back and they confirmed the distance between them by timing their replies. They began walking, hopefully towards each other, when Harry slipped and began to fall down a long well, hitting jagged rocks as he dropped He was knocked unconscious before he hit the ground. And that's where we pick our story back up, Harry finally coming to in his uncle's arms after his perilous fall through the darkness. So try to relax and listen to the sound of my voice. Chapter 26 – A Rapid Recovery When I returned to the consciousness of existence, I found myself surrounded by a kind of semi-obscurity, lying on some thick and soft coverlets. My uncle was watching, his eyes fixed intently on my countenance. A grave expression on his face, a tear in his eye. At the first sigh which struggled from my bosom, he took hold of my hand. When he saw my eyes open and fix themselves upon his, he uttered a cry of joy. He lives. He lives, the professor said. Yes my good uncle, I whispered. Oh, my dear boy, continued the grim professor, clasping me to his heart. You are saved. I was deeply and unaffectedly touched by the tone in which these words were uttered, and even more, by the kindly care which accompanied them. The professor, however, was one of those men who must be severely tried in order to induce any display of affection or gentle emotion. At this moment, our friend Hans, the guide, joined us. He saw my hand in that of my uncle, and I venture to say that, taciturn as he was, his eyes beamed with lively satisfaction." "'Good day,' he said. "'Good day, Hans. Good day,' I replied in as hearty a tone as I could assume. "'And now, Uncle, that we are together, tell me where we are. I have lost all idea of our position, as of everything else.' "'Tomorrow, Harry. Tomorrow,' he replied.' Today you are far too weak. Your head is surrounded with bandages and poultices that must not be touched. Sleep, my boy, sleep, and tomorrow you will know all that you require. But, I said, let me know what o'clock it is, what day it is. It is now eleven o'clock at night. This is once more Sunday, said my uncle. It is now the ninth of the month of August, and I distinctly prohibit you from asking any more questions until the 10th of the same. I was, if truth were told, very weak indeed, and my eyes soon closed involuntarily, I did require a good night's rest, and I went off reflecting at the last moment that my perilous adventure in the interior of the earth, in total darkness, had lasted four days. On the morning of the next day, at my awakening, I began to look around me. My sleeping place, made of all our travel bedding, was in a charming grotto. It was adorned with magnificent stalagmites, glittering in all the colors of the rainbow, the floor of soft and silvery sand. A dim obscurity prevailed. No torch, no lamp was lighted, and yet certain unexplained beams of light penetrated from without and made their way through the opening of the beautiful grotto. I, moreover, heard a vague and indefinite murmur, like the ebb and flow of waves upon a strand, and sometimes I verily believed I could hear the sighing of the wind. I began to believe that Instead of being awake, I must be dreaming. Surely my brain had not been affected by my fall, and all that occurred during the last 24 hours was not the frenzied visions of madness. And yet, after some reflection, a trial of my faculties, I came to the conclusion that I could not be mistaken eyes and ears could surely not both deceive me. It is a ray of the blessed daylight, I said to myself, which has penetrated through some mighty fissure in the rocks. But what is the meaning of this murmur of waves, this unmistakable moaning of the salt sea billows I can hear, too, plainly enough, the whistling of the wind. But can I be altogether mistaken? If my uncle, during my illness, has but carried me back to the surface of the earth, has he, on my account, given up this wondrous expedition? Or, in some strange manner, has it come to an end? I was puzzling my brain over these and other questions when the professor joined me. Good day, Harry, he said in a joyous tone. I fancy you are quite well. I am very much better, I replied, actually sitting up in my bed. I knew that would be the end of it. As you slept both soundly and tranquilly, he said. Hans and I have each taken turn to watch, and every hour we have seen visible signs of amelioration. You must be right, uncle, was my reply, for I feel as if I could do justice to any meal you could put before me. Ah, you shall eat, boy. ''You shall eat,'' he said. ''The fever has left you. Our excellent friend Hans has rubbed your wounds and bruises with an ointment of which the Icelanders alone possess the secret, and they have healed your bruises in the most marvellous manner. Ah, he's a wise fellow, our Hans.' While he was speaking, my uncle was placing before me several articles of food, which, despite his earnest injunctions, I readily devoured. As soon as the first rage of hunger was appeased, I overwhelmed him with questions, to which he now no longer hesitated to give answers. I then learned for the first time that my providential fall had brought me to the bottom of an almost perpendicular gallery. As I came down amidst a perfect shower of stones, the least of which falling on me would have crushed me to death, they came to the conclusion that I had carried with me an entire dislocated rock. Riding, as it were, on this terrible chariot, I was cast headlong into my uncle's arms, and into them I fell, insensible and covered with blood. It is indeed a miracle, was the professor's final remark, that you were not killed a thousand times over, but let us take care never to separate for surely we should risk never meeting again. Let us take care, never again to separate. These words fell with a sort of chill upon my heart. The journey then was not over. I looked at my uncle with surprise and astonishment. My uncle after an instant's examination of my countenance, said, What is the matter, Harry? I want to ask you a very serious question, I told him. You say that I am all right in health. Certainly you are, he replied, and all my limbs are sound and capable of new exertion, I asked. He nodded most undoubtedly. But what about my head? was my next anxious question. Well, your head, except that you have one or two contusions, is exactly where it ought to be, on your shoulders, said my uncle, laughing. Well, my own opinion is that my head is not exactly right, said I. In fact, I believe myself slightly delirious. What makes you think so? he asked. I will explain why I fancy I have lost my senses, I answered. Have we not returned to the surface of Mother Earth? Certainly not, my uncle replied. Then truly I must be mad, said I, for do I not see the light of day? Do I not hear the whistling of the wind? And can I not distinguish the wash of a great sea? And that is all that makes you uneasy, said my uncle with a smile. Can you explain? I asked him. I will not make any attempt to explain, for the whole matter is utterly inexplicable, said he. But you shall see and judge for yourself. You will then find that geological science is as yet in its infancy, and that we are doomed to enlighten the world. Let us advance then, I said eagerly no longer able to restrain my curiosity. Wait a moment, my dear Harry, he responded. You must take precautions after your illness before going into the open air. The open air, I asked. Yes, my boy, replied my uncle. I have to warn you. the wind is rather violent, and I have no wish for you to expose yourself without necessary precautions. But I beg and assure you that I am perfectly recovered from my illness. I said, have just a little patience, my boy, he told me. A relapse would be inconvenient to all parties We have no time to lose, as our approaching sea voyage may be of long duration. Sea voyage? I questioned, more bewildered than ever. Yes, you must take another day's rest, and we shall be ready to go on board by tomorrow, replied my uncle with a peculiar smile. Go on board. The words utterly astonished me. Go on board what and how? Had we come upon a river? A lake? Had we discovered some inland sea? Was a vessel lying at anchor in some part of the interior of the earth? My curiosity was worked up to the very end highest pitch. My uncle made vain attempts to restrain me. When at last, however, he discovered that my feverish impatience would do more harm than good and that the satisfaction of my wishes could alone restore me to a calm state of mind, he gave way. I dressed myself rapidly and then, taking the precaution of wrapping myself in one of the coverlets to please my uncle, I rushed out of the grotto. Chapter 27 The Central Sea At first, I saw absolutely nothing. My eyes, wholly unused to the effulgence of light could not bear the sudden brightness, and I was compelled to close them. When I was able to reopen them, I stood still, far more stupefied than astonished. Not all the wildest effects of imagination could have conjured up such a scene. The sea! The sea! I said. Yes, replied my uncle, in a tone of pardonable pride. It is the central sea. No future navigator will deny the fact of my having discovered it, and hence of acquiring a right of giving it a name. It was quite true. A vast limitless expanse of water. The end of a lake, if not of an ocean, spread before us until it was lost in the distance. The shore, which was very much indented, consisted of a beautiful, soft, golden sand mixed with small shells the long deserted home of some of the creatures of a past age. The waves broke incessantly and with a peculiarly sonorous murmur to be found in underground localities. A slight frothy flake arose as the wind blew along the pellucid waters, and many a dash of spray was blown into my face. The mighty superstructure of rock, which rose above to an inconceivable height, left only a narrow opening, but where we stood, there was a large margin of strand, a long and shining beach. On all sides were capes and promontories, and enormous cliffs, partially worn by the eternal breaking of the waves through countless ages. And as I gazed from side to side, the mighty rocks faded away like a fleecy film of cloud. It was, in reality, an ocean with all the usual characteristics of an inland sea, only horribly wild, so rigid, cold, and untamed. One thing startled and puzzled me greatly. How was it that I was able to look upon that vast sheet of water instead of being plunged in utter darkness. The vast landscape before me was lit up like day, but there was wanting the dazzling brilliancy, the splendid irradiation of the sun, the pale, cold illumination of the moon, or the brightness of the stars. The illuminating power in this subterranean region, from its trembling character, its clear, dry whiteness, the very slight elevation of its temperature, its great superiority to that of the moon, was evidently electric. It was something in the nature of the aurora borealis, only that its phenomena were constant and able to light up the whole of the ocean cavern. The tremendous vault above our heads, the sky, so to speak, appeared to be composed of a conglomeration of nebulous vapors in constant motion. I should originally have supposed that under such an atmospheric pressure as must exist in that place. The evaporation of water could not really take place. And yet, from the action of some physical law which escaped my memory, there were heavy and dense clouds rolling along that mighty vault, partially concealing the roof. Electric currents produced astonishing play of light and shade in the distance, especially around the heavier clouds. Deep shadows were cast beneath, and then suddenly, between two clouds, there would come a ray of unusual beauty and remarkable intensity. And yet, it was not like the sun for it gave no heat. The effect was strange and somewhat melancholy. Instead of a noble firmament of blue studded with stars, there was above me a heavy roof of granite which seemed to bear down on me. Gazing around, I began to think of the theory of the English captain who compared the Earth to a vast, hollow sphere, in the interior of which the air is retained in a luminous state by means of atmospheric pressure, while two stars, Pluto and Prosperpine, circled in their mysterious orbits. After all, suppose the old fellow was right, In truth, we were imprisoned, bound, as it were, in a vast excavation. Its width was impossible to make out. The shore on either hand was widening rapidly until lost to sight, while its length was equally uncertain. A haze on the distant horizon bounded our view. As to its height, we could see that it must be many miles to the roof. Looking upward, it was impossible to discover where the stupendous roof began. The lowest of the clouds must have been floating at an elevation of 2,000 yards, a height greater than that of terrestrial vapors which circumstance was doubtly owing to the extreme density of the air. I used the word cavern in order to give an idea of the place. I cannot describe its awful grandeur. Human language fails to convey an idea of its amazing sublimity. Whether this singular vacuum had or had not been caused by the sudden cooling of the earth, when in a state of fusion, I could not say. I had read of most wonderful and gigantic caverns, but none in any way like this. The great grotto of Guacharo in Colombia, the vast and partially explored mammoth cave in Kentucky. What were these holes in the earth to that in which I stood in speechless admiration? With its vapory clouds, its electric light, and the mighty ocean slumbering in its bosom, nothing could compare. Imagination Not description can alone give an idea of the splendor and vastness of the cave. I gazed at these marvels in profound silence. Words were utterly wanting to indicate the sensations of wonder I experienced. I seemed as I stood upon that mysterious shore, as if I were some wandering inhabitant of a distant planet, present for the first time at the spectacle of some terrestrial phenomena belonging to another existence. To give body and existence to such new sensations would have required the coinage of new words, and here my feeble brain found itself wholly at fault. I looked on. I thought. I reflected. I admired. All in a state of stupefaction, not altogether unmingled with fear. The unexpected spectacle restored some color to my pallid cheeks. I seem to be actually getting better under the influence of this novelty. Moreover, the vivacity of the dense atmosphere reanimated my body by inflating my lungs with unaccustomed oxygen. It will be readily conceived that after an imprisonment of 47 days in a dark, and miserable tunnel. It was with infinite delight that I breathed this saline air. It was like the genial, reviving influence of the salt sea waves. My uncle had already got over the first surprise. With the Latin poet Horace, his idea was that not to admire is all the art I know, to make man happy and to keep him so. Well, he said, after giving me time thoroughly to appreciate the marvels of this underground sea, do you feel strong enough to walk up and down? Certainly, was my ready answer. Nothing would give me greater pleasure. Well then, my boy, he said, lean on my arm and we will stroll along the beach. I accepted his offer eagerly and we began to walk along the shores of this extraordinary lake. To our left were abrupt rocks, piled one upon the other, a stupendous titanic pile. Down their sides leaped innumerable cascades, which at last, becoming limpid and murmuring streams, were lost in the waters of the lake. Light vapours which rose here and there and floated in fleecy clouds from rock rock indicated hot springs, which also poured their superfluity into the vast reservoir at our feet. Among them, I recognized our old and faithful stream, the Hansbach, which, lost in that wild basin, seemed as if it had been flowing since the creation of the world. We shall miss our excellent friend, I remarked with a deep sigh. What matters it, said my uncle testily, that or another, it is all the same. I thought the remark ungrateful and felt almost inclined to say so, but I forbore. At this moment, my attention was attracted by an unexpected spectacle. After we had gone about 500 yards, we suddenly turned a steep promontory and found ourselves close to a lofty forest. It consisted of straight trunks with tufted tops in shape like parasols. The air seemed to have no effect upon these trees, which, in spite of a tolerable breeze, remained as still and motionless as if they had been petrified. I hastened forward. I could find no name for these singular formations. Did they not belong to the two thousand more known trees? Or were we to make the discovery of a new growth? When we at last reached the forest and stood beneath the trees, my surprise gave way to admiration. In truth, I was simply in the presence of a very ordinary product of the earth, of singular and gigantic proportions my uncle unhesitatingly called them by their real name. It is only, he said in his coolest manner, a forest of mushrooms. On close examination, I found that he was not mistaken. I charged that the development attained by this product was the result of damp, Hot soils. I had heard that the Lycopodium giganteum reaches nine feet in circumference, but here were white mushrooms nearly forty feet high, and with tops of equal dimensions. They grew in countless thousands. The light could not make its way through their massive substance and beneath them reigned a gloomy and mystic darkness. Still, I wished to go forward. The cold in the shades of this singular forest was intense. For nearly an hour, we wandered about in this visible darkness. At length, I left the spot and once more turned to the shores of the lake to light and comparative warmth. But the amazing vegetation of subterraneous land was not confined to gigantic mushrooms. New wonders awaited us at every step. We had not gone many hundred yards When we came upon a mighty group of other trees with discolored leaves, the common, humble trees of Mother Earth of an exorbitant and phenomenal size, there were lycopods a hundred feet high, flowering ferns as tall as pines and gigantic grasses. Astonishing! "'Magnificent, splendid,' said my uncle. "'Here we have before us the whole flora of the second period of the world, "'that of transition. "'Behold the humble plants of our gardens, "'which in the first ages of the world were mighty trees. "'Look around you, my dear Harry,' No botanist ever before gazed on such a sight. My uncle's enthusiasm, always a little more than was required, was now excusable. You are right, uncle, I remarked. Providence appears to have designed the preservation in this vast, a mysterious hot house of antediluvian plants to prove the sagacity of learned men in figuring them so marvelously on paper. Well said, my boy. Very well said, he replied. It is indeed a mighty hothouse. But you would also be within the bounds of reason and common sense if you added that it is also a vast menagerie. I looked rather anxiously around. If the animals were as exaggerated as the plants, the matter would certainly be serious. A menagerie? I asked. Doubtless, he answered. Look at the dust we are treading upon underfoot. Behold the bones with which the whole soil of the seashore is covered bones, I replied. Yes, suddenly the bones of antediluvian animals. I stooped down as I spoke and picked up one or two singular remains, relics of a bygone age. It was easy to give a name to these gigantic bones, in some instances as big as trunks of trees. Here is clearly the lower jawbone of a mastodon, I said, almost as warmly and enthusiastically as my uncle. Here are the molars of the dinotherium. Here is a leg bone which belonged to the megatherium. You are right, uncle. It is indeed a menagerie, for the mighty animals to which these bones once belonged have lived and died on the shores of this subterranean sea, under the shadow of these plants. Look, yonder are whole skeletons. But then I paused as a realization dawned on me. And yet, nephew, said my uncle, noticing that I suddenly came to a full stop. I do not understand the presence of such beasts in granite caverns, however vast and prodigious, was my reply. Why not? said my uncle, with very much of his old professional impatience. Because it is well known that animal life only existed on Earth during the secondary period, when the sedimentary soil was formed by the alluviums and then replaced by the hot and burning rocks of the earlier age, I replied, I have listened to you earnestly and with patience, Harry, said my uncle, and I have a simple and clear answer to your objections, and that is, that this itself is a sedimentary soil. How can that be at such enormous depth from the surface of the earth? I asked. The fact can be explained both simply and geologically, he replied. At a certain period, the earth consisted only of an elastic crust, liable to alternative upward and downward movements in virtue of the law of attraction. It is very probable that many a landslip took place in those days, and that large portions of sedimentary soil were cast into huge and mighty chasms. Quite possible, I dryly remarked. But Uncle If these antediluvian animals formerly lived in these subterranean regions, what could be more likely than that one of these monsters may, at this moment, be concealed behind one of yonder mighty rocks? As I spoke, I looked keenly around, examining with care every point of the horizon— nothing alive appeared to exist on these deserted shores. I now felt rather fatigued and told my uncle so. The walk and excitement were too much for me in my weak state. I therefore seated myself at the end of a promontory, at the foot of which the waves broke in incessant rolls I looked round a bay formed by projections of vast granitic rocks. At the extreme end was a little port protected by huge pyramids of stones. A brig and three or four schooners might have lain there with perfect ease. So natural did it seem that every minute my imagination induced me to expect a vessel coming out under all sail and making for the open sea under the influence of a warm southerly breeze. But the fantastic illusion never lasted more than a minute. We were the only living creatures in this subterranean world. During certain periods, there was an utter cessation of wind when a silence, deeper and more terrible than the silence of the desert, fell upon these solitary and arid rocks. It seemed to hang like a leaden weight upon the waters of this singular ocean. I sought, amid the awful stillness, to penetrate through the distant fog, to tear down the veil which concealed the mysterious distance. What unspoken words were murmured by my trembling lips? What questions did I wish to ask and did not? Where did this sea end? To what did it lead? should we ever be able to examine its distant shores? But my uncle had no doubts about the matter. He was convinced that our enterprise would in the end be successful. For my part, I was in a state of painful indecision. I desired to embark on the journey and to succeed, and still... I feared the result. After we had passed an hour or more in silent contemplation of the wondrous spectacle, we rose and went down towards the bank on our way to the grotto, which I was not sorry to reach. After a slight repast, I sought refuge in slumber And at length, after many and tedious struggles, sleep came over my weary eyes.